Welcome to Recovery Uncovered, your all things recovery podcast. Recovery Uncovered is produced by MHAB Enterprises, a division of the Northeast Group of Companies located right here in Plattsburgh, New York. I'm your host, Mike Carpenter. Affectionately known as MHAB Mike. And I'm your co-host, Betsy Vicencio. Affectionately known as BV the Normie. We have one goal in these podcasts, and that's not to suck. Thanks for tuning in. Episode 5 of Recovery Uncovered. I'm your host, Mike Carpenter. This is my co-host, Betsy Vicenzio. How you doing, MHAP, Mike? Well, you know, I'm doing okay. I'm yeah. back. Super Bowl Sunday just went by. We all had to You're watch survived. Tom Brady win another Super Bowl. Which he just did a good job. He kicked the ass of that little young whippersnapper. Man, that guy couldn't get his act together for nothing. It aggravates the hell out of me. How can a 43-year-old guy be still that talented? It really just, <laughs> just annoys me. Oh, you, know, you know, how talented are you at mm, significantly <laughs> yes, I, yes. older than significantly 43? Older Let's than talk about that yes. for a minute. Yes, I used to be a good, you know, backyard quarterback <laughs> in the day playing with my three other friends. And we're all great Monday morning quarterbacks now. So, there's so I want to tell you, we have a great guest today. I know, before we, we really Before excited. we introduce our guest, I want to tell you, you know, I had a great weekend this weekend, and, and it's funny, I was talking to somebody about, you know, being in recovery and what it means and all that kind of stuff, and, and you know, I was out Friday night with a group of people that are in recovery, they're friends of mine, we're just having fun at the restaurant and playing around, and then we went skiing on, on Saturday with a group of people that are in recovery, and Saturday night I went out to dinner and had, you know, dinner with a different group of people that are in recovery, and, you know, then I watched the Super Bowl with my wife who's in recovery, and it, it's like, you know, we weren't in this bad place or this oh we got to talk about recovery or we got to be serious we were just really enjoying life and you know that's one of the things we always try to remember here is that recovery is fun like yeah. it's fun my, my life is fun today like it, we, I just had a great weekend so I felt the need to say that and it was great right up until Tom Brady ruined it so <laughs> you know thank you for me having to watch him win another Super Bowl he's running out of fingers to put his rings on well you know I think uh, I think that the uh the weekend presented a lot of great options for a lot of people, including Tom Brady, right? Did and you did you like ski down some mountain that doesn't I have trails and did. shit like that like you normally oh, do? Oh, we had such a great weekend. We spent about six hours up on Lion Mountain on Saturday, so we skinned up, skied down, put our skins back on, went up almost to the top and and tried to ski down through some super treacherous terrain. And then Sunday, with my brother and his wife, um, we uh, we went back to Lion Mountain, another group of trails and glades, and we went and skied with them for the day. It was just it was a beautiful weekend outside. We were so glad to get outside. I get tired just thinking about you. You're a chronic <laughs> overachiever, whatever. Good, good, good for you. There's I'm no just, part of me that wants to hike up a mountain to ski back uh, down. It doesn't make any sense. It's you know, COVID has done some really interesting things. I think um, you know because I'm a skier, uh, but with COVID, I don't love the crowd. And so I'm really happy to get off into the woods. And you know I love to hike. So. Well, you know what? I must be rubbing off on you. You don't like people. I love people. I hate COVID. So, so there's a difference. Let's get started with our podcast. First off, sweatshirt. New sweatshirt for the week, as I promised. Very this one clearly this states one is. adulting is not for me today. And I don't think there'd be any dispute that <laughs> that is something that's pretty profound so for me. So here's my question. Is today yeah. different from any other day? <laughs> no, but I can only wear it one day at a time. <laughs> We, uh, Adulting. 
you know, our first guest on this podcast a couple weeks ago was Billy Jones, and he was, a, he was all right. You know, Billy spends hmm. a lot of time in front of a camera. We're really excited about today's guest, who yeah, will be way better than Billy Jones. So this is, this is wow. going to be terrific. Dissing on the Billy and Jones. Today we're going to talk about addiction, recovery, and mental health and how they, they pertain to each other. And I have a, a wonderful human being here who is a very dear friend of mine. Rochelle Gregory is the Director of Community Services for Clinton County. And so, Rochelle, thank you for coming. And, and I want to tell a kind of a cute personal story. We've known each, how long have we known each other? 20, 20 years close? Not 20 years, but yeah, good. It's pretty close. Yeah, 2009. You, I got to know you when you were the director of the Child Advocacy Center. Child Advocacy Center, and you rented space from us. And you and I had a talk in your office one day, and uh, and I don't even know how we got on it, but I told you my anniversary day. And uh, every year since that day, you have sent me the first text in the morning of anybody congratulating me on my anniversary day. Mm. And that is just, and it, and it warms my heart. It's always been very special to me that you, I assume you put it in your calendar and you don't actually remember it. just pops <laughs> up. But I'm going to give you credit for shelf. being terrific. And, well, and the one year I missed it and you <laughs> reminded me, it was because I switched phones. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> yes, exactly. I wasn't going to bring it up. I was going to leave it that you remembered me every year. But yes, you did forget me one year. And I, you know, being as sensitive as I am, I was very, very hurt by that. But, but overall, you know, we've been great friends and, and what you do for this community and what you've Thank done you. for this community for a long time is tremendous. So we're happy you came and wanted to chat Thank with you. us today and, and, and uh, be on our, our podcast. So tell me, tell us a little about yourself and, and the job that you have as the Director of Community Services, which I know as a, as a board member is, uh, is an incredibly difficult job trying to juggle all the balls and keep them in the air. So fill us in on what you do. So Director of Community Services, uh, there's one of my position, it's written into mental hygiene law in every single county. And we oversee programs for um, the Office of Addictions and Support Services, the Office of Mental Health, and the Office of People with Developmental Disabilities. So we That's are- That's O-P-W-D-D, right? Yes. Yeah, see, yeah. I'm getting Ooh, the acronyms. Look at you. Look at that. Yeah, that's cool. So <laughs> we're the local government unit for the state for those programs, and we oversee county planning, identifying needs and gaps in services, and setting the direction uh, in part for our local communities and for the state on initiatives and priorities. Um, throughout the state and, uh, and community. So on top of that, I also run Clinton County Mental Health and Addiction Services, and uh, about 50% of people in my position have a local government uh, clinic operation uh, under the county government. So you have oversight for the other age, some of the other agencies or some of the things that the other, other agencies do here yes. that provide services <clears throat> as well, is that correct? Yes, agencies that receive state aid uh, and oversight from one of those organizations uh, I provide, help provide oversight. How long has that been, how, how long has that, has your position been in place in the state? So like it's relatively new, right? <clears throat> well, under mental hygiene law, when they started the deinstitutionalization of individuals, um, so not having people institutionalized for long periods of time, they started reinvesting funds into the community and, pro and in that, so that was in the 70s, they created under mental hygiene law local government units and community services board to oversee that transition in those populations and local communities. So that's how they minimize the number of people that r rather than just throwing them into institutions we said let's meet them where they're at in the communities and that's <coughs> kind of where that came from. Well and a couple really important things happened in the 70s. One we increased um, our types of medication used to treat 
mental illness. Also, there was a civil rights movement on least restrictive environment for those mm -hmm. individuals. Um, and there were some uncovering of what institutionalization was doing to people and how it was actually detrimental um, to their health. Uh, and so that movement created our position, the Community Services Board. You like your job? Love I what you do? Do you like my job? <laughs> so can I just <laughs> 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 not like, to put her on the spot? Right on the spot. Just like, let's just you know go so fire right out. I love helping the populations. I very much like crisis. I think the best part of chaos my, junkie. Like the, yes, <laughs> the best part of my day is um, is touching individual lives, and I don't get to do that all the time because I'm more involved in larger systems work. Yeah. But when I get involved, it's usually the highest crisis, most vulnerable person in the community at that time. And I really can work with systems and people to come up with uh, sometimes innovative things to meet their needs. And what we're very fortunate about here in Clinton, um, commute, or Clinton County is the ability to use those relationships to really wrap around a person. And I think that urban areas don't have that as well. It's our relationships. I can call Betsy and be like, Betsy, I, I, need, I need a favor. I've got somebody that needs A, B, C, or D. How can you help me? So I love that about this community. Would you actually call Betsy before you call me? Probably. That, that just hurts. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I just want you to know that it, it just hurts, Rochelle. But it's all right. It's, it's fine. But. You know, I'm going to say to your credit, you probably do pick up the phone 70% of the time when Rochelle calls. I do, yes. I will, that a, is that I a will good tell stat? you that when Rochelle calls, Rochelle. I pick it up 100% of the time. Oh. I will never let her go to voicemail. Rochelle and John Redden. Billy Jones calls. I'm like, uh, who cares? Again, with when, the when Rochelle or John Redden call, those two people get immediate access. So can I just ask, so you're, you're saying that, that, you know, mental hygiene law changed in the 70s, so we have 50 years of, of kind of re, almost 50 years of kind of re-engineering the way we handle mental, mental health issues. Do addiction issues also fall in under that same kind of prescriptive governance? Yes. So, um, uh, all th well, the three systems were created, right? So uh, Office of Addictions, Office of Mental Health, and Office of... Uh, um, person with developmental disabilities. They're constantly evolving. Uh, regulations are changing and as the science has gotten better, which I would say over the last 20 years we've really got some solid science on behavioral health issues and behavioral health encompassing both addiction and mental health. So I use that term to include both, but a lot of really good science supporting uh, work that needs to be in our, our done in our communities and how we can help mitigate and buffer those types. At, at the state level, there's talk, I think, of, of the Office of Alcoholism and Substance Use or whatever it's called now, OASIS and OMH possibly merging at some point down the road. Is that correct, yep. a correct assessment? Yeah, so a few Makes years sense. ago, yeah, a few years ago they looked at that. It didn't happen, but they are uh, re-looking at that now. Yeah, yeah, so creating one agency because, uh, again, as a science and the um, understanding of behavioral health evolves, we know that they're very interconnected, mm -hmm. uh, mental health and substance abuse. So they years really ago can't be when treated independently. When you and I first met, you were probably the first person who talked to me about trauma and childhood trauma and the number of people who dealt with trauma and how uh, much of an impact that has on addiction later on in life and mental health and things like that. Talk to me a little, <coughs> and I don't know why it was such a passion for you, but it's always been whenever I hear you speak and I hear you a lot, you know, that whole trauma piece, trauma-informed care, I think is the phrase that gets thrown around a lot. Tell me a little, talk to me a little about trauma and how that impacts 
you know, kids as they grow up. So it's, uh, there was a large research study done by Kaiser Permanente in the late 90s, and what it did is it looked at childhood trauma. So it's called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And it looked at trauma um, with basically middle-class health-insured individuals. And what they found is two-thirds of those individuals had experienced a childhood trauma. So there's basically, they boiled it down to 10 questions, uh, which include sexual abuse, domestic violence, abandonment of a child, uh, or yeah, abandonment of a child by a parent through incarceration. Um, so from this, you get a score of one to 10. Based on that score, we can look at your life potential and outcome for life potential. And what they found for the first time, we were able to link with empirical data, um, childhood trauma and almost every health crisis that we face in our community. And I don't mean behavioral health crisis, I mean heart disease, suicide, smoking, risky behaviors, obesity, diabetes. Um, so all of these were linked to childhood trauma and it had a dose um, response, meaning the higher your ACEs score, the more likely your life potential would be affected all the way up to education and income earning potential. Wow, profound. It is profound and fascinating, uh, the research behind that. And that uh, if we can go back and understand childhood trauma, and I think one of the problems is people aren't educated. We hear trauma a lot. We hear trauma-informed a lot without really understanding the science of trauma. Right. Um, Have you done your ACEs score? My who? Eight. That's what she's Adverse about, childhood ACEs. experiences, that the 10 questions you answer, yes or no, the no, 10 I'd, questions you get I'd probably score. get a perfect 10. Perfect score, yeah! <laughs> I don't think that's the one you want to be a perfect 10 on. <laughs> I mean, so the CDC <laughs> continues to administer a version of this study and collect data on this study. What is very important that I love to get out there and need to speak about is the body doesn't care what the trauma is. Why? That's why we only need a score. I only need to know you're a five or a six to really know um, some of the consequences that having that trauma and how it may affect your life. So you as a clinician or a practitioner don't need to know the why you're a five or a six to know how to help? Is that what you're Well, no, that's not true, but to know what the implicate long-term implications oh, would I be. See. So if you're a five, I know you're at higher risk for suicide or drug abuse or heart disease or diabetes, Got right? Um, so I think that's important. And the reason it's important is because the body does not care what the trauma is. It reacts the same. So we can't level trauma. We can't say sexual abuse is worse than domestic violence or a parent with an addiction um, because the body reacts the same no matter what the trauma is. And basically it's a survival instinct that raises the level of cortisol, norepinephrine, and adrenaline in your body. So there's like Am I going way too much? No, <laughs> okay. no, not no. At all. I think it's. <laughs> no. I think it's just. It's, it is fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. So excuse me. So there are three <laughs> levels of stress, right? So there's stress, and these hormones kick in for stress, and it makes us meet a deadline, get a paper done in school, come to work every day. So those stress levels are normal, natural, and they actually help us achieve with our potential. And then there's a second level of stress, and that that's usually situational: the death of a, a parent or loved one, where it's longer, but you might have resources that help buffer that, and then. And the third, and the one we're talking about, is toxic stress. So it's long-term exposures to those chemicals ongoing that increases your heart rate, that decreases your digestion, that um, leads to all of these uh, negative effects on your body when exposed long-term. So right. think, Can we just back up yeah, for me? Because I'm a little bit slow. 
So you're indicating that these hormone receptors or hormones that are released are, are, are typical and normal and things that you want to have happen in your, in your body, mm -hmm. right? But there's a, there's a level at which they become actually toxic. Yes. So things that help you in, in low level stages become Absolutely. poisonous and can then subsequently create the opportunity for, you know, for bad, worse health conditions. Yes. Is that what I'm Absolutely. understanding? Wow. Not only that, it affects uh, with children, it affects the neuron development. And so... In the brain? In the brain, yeah. Mm -hmm. So children have trouble learning during this stage because you're at a heightened sense of survival. All uh, the time. All the time. Always on, and always on alert. So you're very focused on whatever you think the, um, the, uh, threat is. So yeah. you're very focused on what you think the threat is, very similar to a tiger coming and eating you, right? So this is the hardwire of the brain for survival. So you're focused on the threat, your periphery becomes non-existent, and so you can't learn, retain information. Your cognitive functioning to look at long-term consequences and make good decisions and problem-solving decisions becomes offline. So what comes first, though, the, the chicken or the egg, so to speak? In other words, does somebody, before they experience trauma as a child or a young adult, are they, do they already have a, a mental health issue, a chemical imbalance? Are they, are they predisposed to addiction, or are we presuming that the trauma has a lot more to do with what happens to them? from an illness standpoint afterwards? I wish I could answer that question because yeah. I would be a genius. No. Well, I wish you could. <laughs> I wish you could, too. That's so, why I'm mean, like, so, like. Um, so, I mean, we're back to, you know, nature nurture, right? Yep. So, yep. yes, are there pre schizophrenia? There's a predisposition yep. for that. A genetic predisposition yes. for schizophrenia. Yes. Yep. So there are certain things that we know, um, regardless of your environment, you have a predisposition and a tendency towards. However, we know that stress can turn on and off certain genes within the body. Um, so uh, you want a level of stress because, as I've said to you before, uncomfortable people don't grow, right? Mm -hmm. So you yep. want a level of stress to achieve and meet your potential, but there becomes a point that you get saturated uh, and then it becomes recovery and exhaustion and all the th negative consequences that I've talked so you and I are never going to fight over this, but we might debate it a little yes. bit. So let, Often. so when you think about the the addiction, and remember, this is a this podcast is kind of a recovery podcast, but we want to make sure that we encompass everything that yes. goes into recovery prevention and all of those things. So for those of us that are in recovery, like myself, I'm a believer that I was probably born this way. There were things that happened in my childhood and through my life, but I was destined to become a, an alcoholic and an addict. Like that was in my hmm. in my DNA is, is kind of what many of us believe. And, and I wonder, I kind of get the feeling that the scientific or medical community is leaning away from that a little bit, that a lot more of this is determined by behaviors and things that happen as opposed to genetics. Is, is that a fair assessment? I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that. What I can say to you is that after, you know, the ACES study and some of the data out of that, we are now looking at resiliency. So why do two kids in the same environment, one would look um, seemingly successful and one not? Why am I a four and not a drug addict and another person is a four and a drug addict and right. struggles to keep a job? Um, and some of that is related to resiliency factors. And those are things that we know, if built in, we can buffer the effects of trauma. Okay. 
So had you had those around you or a different degree of those, maybe we could have mitigated that, maybe not. I, I'm not really qualified to answer that, Mike. Right, because I grew up with, you know, I have three siblings. We all grew up in the same house. My parents were married mm -hmm. until we got, you know, they, they split up later on. So we all effectively had, you know, the same experience. I mean, I joke that, you know, my siblings were treated better than me and they were favorites <laughs> and all that. But truthfully, we were all grew up in the same environment with the same... Same uh, environment, but not the same experience. Right. So I, but it is interesting that I grew up to be this way and my other siblings did not mm -hmm. grow up to be this way. Rochelle, can I ask about, you talked about resiliency factors mm -hmm. that you, we can possibly, can, can possibly encompass a child's experience or can you just speak to what, what I, don't, I don't know that I know what that means. Yeah, so what we're, we're uh, what, what they're starting to pull out is there are certain factors that we can put in place. So one, safety, both environmental and emotional safety. Uh, the other is resources, having access to resources. And if you look at some of the data, people that live in certain um, zip codes who don't have access to medical care, dental care, mental health care, plus live in very violent um, communities, right? Their life potential and life expectancy is much lower than a neighborhood next door, right? Um, so, so resources, uh, community connections, making sure you're connected with people in the community and feel like that you have a place in that community is very important. And lastly, relationships. So making sure you have a good personal nurturing relationship with someone. Someone, anyone. You know, it's interesting, we uh, we talk about... Um, so maybe they liked your siblings more, somebody. <laughs> That's what I've thought. I've been That's saying it all he's along. Been, he's been the black sheep the whole time. <laughs> I my maybe the neighbor is like, I like this kid more than Mike. <laughs> my, my mom, I think years ago, bought my younger sister for Christmas a t-shirt that said, Mom loves me best. Oh. Like, it was designed just to tell me that I get it, I understand. Yes, that's exactly right. Right, but what you see as the big flags for trauma, Mike, Maybe maybe there was trauma, but you just aren't seeing it as the big you right. know the big you know sexual abuse, domestic violence, right. substance abuse. Yeah, yeah I, I think that it's it's almost like every person is an individual and Absolutely. they handle things differently. You're right. That yes. you know somebody getting a, a D on a test in school may be traumatic to them, where other people are like ah D, I don't really care. Right. So it, it, some of that is that personal personal stuff, I think. So I like it that you, I feel like you've identified five resiliency factors that if we as society work to help people accomplish or achieve and include in their lives, that there's an opportunity to improve people's condition, whether they're uh, young and uh, having potential for addiction or mental health is issues, whether they're developing and are, are really trying to figure out how they embark into the next stages of their life, or if they're people in recovery. is, is We can kind of think about these resiliency factors as, as our, 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 this is how we theoretically can solve the problem or help the problem, maybe not solve. Solve <laughs> might be a big word and a big ask. One of the things that uh, draws me to childhood trauma is if we can take our resources and funding and implement larger programs that we know are evidence-based early mm -hmm. on in 20 years, in the next generation, we're going to be able to see the fruits. Right now, a lot of work we do is on the back end, Reactionary. right? Yep. Yep. Uh, but if we can go back and create trauma-informed schools, so teachers and school personnel that understand 
um, by uh, a kid coming in and might have been part of domestic violence the night before, they're not going to be ready to do math, right. <laughs> right? And that we can provide that kind of education and support around them to decrease those stress hormones. So when you hear yoga and mindfulness and music and moving the body, these are all ways that dispel those hormones in the body. So you, you're not even able to process or uh, input new information until we decrease those hormone levels. I have a very good friend of mine who teaches um, here at one of the local school districts, and her classroom is set up with multiple different education. I'm going to call them stations, but she's everything from stand-up desks to beanbag mm. chair desks to... Um, and she works very hard to help kids find what is the environment that they need where they can have a good day, have mm -hmm. a successful day with whatever she's learning. And I love it when that type of creativity is allowed to be brought into the, to the classroom. And you think about it, I mean, kids in particular, they spend for 10 months out of the year, six, seven, or eight hours a day mm -hmm. in our schools. There's at least an opportunity for us to move the needle well, forward. Well, they used to. Oh, well, <laughs> well <laughs> pre-COVID. <laughs> and sometimes that's the safest environment for a kid. So that's, so uh, they might have not had a meal the night before or things might have happened in their family with addiction or, or, like I said, domestic violence. So they're going into school already at a heightened um, feeling of stress and fear and anxiety with those hormones. So school could be a place to mitigate and dispel some of some of the right. negative effects right. of the toxic stress. I think, stress I think we hear, sto hear stories about people though that are in recovery, and they talk about the fa you know the fact that you know sports or school saved my life, yes. or some other connection outside of their home was a key factor in in you know keeping them alive or or. You know, I think that's I think that's a big a big opportunity. Well, I think of your two kids that grew up in an incredibly toxic environment, and one of them turned into a great kid, and the other one turned into a drug addict. So who's now doing well? <laughs> so you know, it was all the toxicity uh, that went on in the Vicenzio household. So we we know all every about that. Every single episode, uh, yeah, everyone. You're the reason your daughter's yes. an addict. Yes. So you could have stepped up and created a nice personal relationship yeah. with her daughter, and I have one now. I, oh, I now save my daughter's he life. Now. Like, yeah. I'm right, on, on her way not. to recovery, to, to, to rehab is where he began to establish his relationship. I just say it every week, don't I? Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. You that's know, good. I, I gotta, that's got to be part of the regular podcast. Uh, right to the heart. So hey, let's simplify it. Kindness and connection. <laughs> right? It's let's my simplify. strong suit. Kindness. No, for, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Rochelle. <laughs> so, listen, you and I sit on the Spark Steering Committee, and one we of the do. things that we've talked about at the Spark Steering Committee is, is this whole idea of... Prevention, we're huge on prevention. We're trying so hard and you, you do great work and all the things that you do. And then once people get to the part where it's their life has gotten so bad and they come into recovery, we're really good and focused on how we do that. It's that middle ground where we kind of are, are losing that. Is that right? You know what I mean? It's like if we can't prevent it, then we're almost saying, well, now we have to wait till they've actually hit this bottom, till they've destroyed their life before mm. we can get them to be better. And so what do we do to kind of get a little, a little more in the middle, I guess, is what I'm saying. That, you know, if we can't catch them when they're four, what do we do for them when they're 10, 11, 12, 14, 15, before they really get into the, the craziness that goes on? So if nothing else, COVID put a big microscope on what was already happening. Right. Yep. So we've yep. seen some of the um, lesser targeted drugs like alcohol. 
Yep. Right? We have not done a lot of work around alcohol right. and alcoholism, which is a slower killer. Yep. Um, of course, overdoses get a lot of attention, but alcohol doesn't. Uh, with the COVID pandemic, we've seen increase of alcoholism. Um, I think it's about healthy lifestyles and community connectionness. So social isolation has also been a magnifying glass with COVID. I think people were feeling lonely and socially isolated, um, especially in rural New York. Um, but you can be in a crowd and, and feel isolated, right? Sure you can. So, so we've lack, we lack that community connectedness, and I don't know if there's great platforms to do that anymore with the decrease of religion and churches, and, mm -hmm. and uh, which used to be a place for people to come together and take care of each other. I don't know that we've ever replaced those kind of communities. Um, so that's really the key. The key is having a, a trusting personal relationship with someone that can say, hey, I, I think you're headed down a wrong path. And the other is the community taking accountability and responsibility for its individuals. Yep. Um, so I see that this person's struggling instead of do this, you know, not my problem, or I'm uncomfortable talking about it, or I'm comfortable with your pain, is actually leaning into it and being like, hey, I'm here for you, and if it's not me, there's somebody else out there for you. You know, I'm glad you brought up churches and religion and that stuff, and I'm probably going to put you on the spot and you're going to get mad at me for this because <laughs> you work in the professional field. But obviously for people that are in recovery, you know, there there's a large portion of people in recovery that believe that the spiritual malady mm -hmm. is part of, you know, addiction and, and that kind of stuff. And I know that science and people who work in the field are trying to do this from a very scientific approach. You know, how do you just feel in general about the recovery movement that's centered around spirituality or wellness or, you know, those types of things? Because it really flies in the face of, you know, some of the medical professionals who say if we come up with a pill or this, then we'll be able to, you know, resolve this. And, and you know, people like me don't necessarily believe that. So what is connectedness if it's not spirituality? So I think we are getting away from religion, but I do think there's a movement of spirituality and uh, finding your own individual sense of spirituality. Mm -hmm. A long time ago when I was working in a program far from here, um, somebody said to me that they saw children more, were increasing suicide, more hopelessness in children. And I said, what do you think the difference is? And they said, God, um, even when their parents misbehaved or they misbehaved, they always believed there was someone to care for them yep. and somebody that was watching and somebody that, you know, that was guiding. And as we've decreased religion, the kids don't have that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that we are at the beginning of a spirituality movement. And I think when I speak about connectedness, that is a piece of connectedness, spirituality, that you belong to something. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that we are incredibly lucky in this community because we have professionals like you and others who will appear on this podcast, and you know, I'm not going to out them for it, who believe the same way. They don't, they're not necessarily so rigid on the medical or scientific part of it that they're not willing to embrace that there are other components of this that can help that may not necessarily fall in the clinical world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're fortunate for that. We, you know, the Spark Coalition, if I go back to that, you know, we brought together a collection of a wide variety of different people with different skill sets and different beliefs and, and put them all in a room. And that has actually functioned pretty well um, to talk about, you know, addiction and, and what we do to, to, you know, deal with that issue in all of the arenas, not just one arena. Like all of these things are, are so important. So my hat's off to you for being, you know, open and willing to say that. You know, we talk about, I know we talk about it at MHAB a lot. We talk about it in our business and, 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 and I want to 
back up by saying I think that our organization has really tried to, in our own little world, create our own sense of community and connectiveness to help at least the people that are part of our, our little family here. But we talk about um, that particular piece. Um, we are only as strong as our weakest link. And as a community, I think we begin to adopt that. I know at MHAB we talk about this often. Our, or, our, our entire campus, our entire organization is only as strong as the weakest link that we have. And, um, and the other piece to that, for me, um, has to do with raising, obviously raising people up, right? Finding what, are, what is it that we're doing every day to raise people up from the places that they are. Um, love the work that we do with regard to that. Well, I'm treating them with incredible kindness. <laughs> You're the king of, of kindness. kindness. right. The king of kindness. We appreciate you. Are they you. keeping me cold so I stay awake? I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's I'm not it's sure so it's because the it's little so heater, cold here. Turn a little heater on, then the sound isn't good. Can you turn it on for a little while, or will it it's really right. It's all right. It's all right. I'll just it is. Yeah. My hands are frozen, yeah, yeah, yeah. too. Yeah, my so hands are frozen. We need to be. figure that out. We yeah. haven't resolved that issue yet. But yes, we want to keep. We do want to keep you awake, right? Not falling asleep. Were you falling asleep? Yeah. With Mike. Can you talk to me a little bit about mental health and? addiction and how they go hand in hand. When I came into recovery 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago, <coughs> there was not the, they, they were separated. You, you, had, a, you were, had mental illness or you had addiction. It appears that over the last 30 years at least and maybe longer, there's been this morphing into recognizing that they largely go hand in hand, not exclusively, but largely go hand in hand. And I know personally people who struggled with that I can take care of my addiction, but I can't take care of my mental health, or I can take care of my mental health and I can't take care of my addiction. I think the fact that the Office of Mental Health and Oasis are still split speaks to exactly what we're mm -hmm. talking about. So tell me yeah. about what you know about that. So it's a balance. You can't have poor mental health uh, and not have it ac uh, affect other parts of your life and your overall functioning from day to day. You can't have substance abuse and have the rest of your life functioning really well for long periods of time, right? So um, I think it comes hand in hand with mental illness is that sense of self-medicating, right? So when people are struggling with their mental health, they self-medicate to feel better, whether it be anxiety, a perfect example, you have a couple drinks, can bring that anxiety down temporarily over a long course of time, that self-medication turns into something else, a reliance on it or a crutch or something that replaces what you really should be doing, such as exercise or other things to remain healthy. Um, so we do see self-medicating. We also could go into, which is a way too long discussion, you know, the role of pharmaceutical companies and over-prescribing, and then all of a sudden you can't pay for those medications that helped keep you there. Oh, no, so let's talk about then it. You can move can, to you, can somebody explain to me why the Sackler family is not in jail today and El Chapo is going to spend the rest of his life in jail? Those people are drug dealers, period. That's what they are. They all ought to be in prison. Don't hold back. Tell me how uh, you really feel. You know what? It, nothing aggravates me more than that. Be. They would name hospital wings after these people, and they've done nothing but destroy lives in this country. Yes. So. I w you don't have to say that. I'll say that. <laughs> I'm not beholden to anybody. I was like, I'm not saying anymore. Yes. No, no, no. I would agree. Let that one sit with us for a minute. No, no, no. I, My hat's I would off agree. To the, I think everybody the, would agree. The Attorney General of New York State for going after them. Good for her. So, so just talk about that. So, there was a potential to have people without mental health issues over prescribed opioid, opioids, which 
basically we were lied to that they weren't as addictive, became as addictive. And so what did that do to people's mental health, right? It really, we saw um, a relationship that was parallel. As you got deeper into your addiction, your mental health became unwell. And you can't medicate yourself forever and not expect your mental health to not be affected as it is your relationships and your finances and every other aspect of your life. Um, So those people may not have had mental health issues, but may have had an injury, a sports injury, that led to mental health issues as they uh, went over the course of their addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the same with mental health issues. So they get prescribed a medication that either goes off the market or they can't afford anymore, and now they're left to finding they something on the street or alcohol or sure. something to help to help balance uh, right. that. And, and the drugs don't always work so well, and there's always a, a period of time. Also, when we look at some uh, mental health diagnosis, your body creates its own drug, right? (laughs) Right? And so convincing someone that feels really good with a mental illness because their brain brain chemistry is producing its own high um, to to decrease that high to balance and level off, that's a really hard ask and very difficult, especially when they feel so good all the the time. That's like somebody that might be bipolar or something where they have the high, high highs and the low, low lows. And when they're low, they don't want to feel that way. But when they're high, they don't want you to say, (laughs) oh, no, we we don't want you to be so excited. We want you to be down here. Right, right. right, Because they can't necessarily recognize the the swing. Sorry. No, go ahead. um, we say in this podcast that we believe that uh, that everybody's in recovery from something. Mm-hmm. Do you do you believe that statement? Yeah, I, I do believe that statement. I think it's part of the human condition to struggle, uh, and I don't believe that all areas of your life can be in balance all the time. Right. So if we look at it, is there's always a piece that needs to be tweaked, even at the healthy, most healthy. Sure. Uh, there's always a piece that needs to be tweaked. Um, we're normalizing. You know what's happening with that statement that you just said and the question you asked? What that's doing is normalizing that it's okay to struggle. You know, we, we oftentimes, you know, you see people on TV or you see people that you hold in esteem and you think perfect. because they present this perfect image that they're perfect all the time. Right. And what we're beginning to realize is that no, none of us live like that. We've no. all got, you know, issues and things that we struggle with on a day-to-day basis and more severe for some, less severe for others. But all of us have something that we're working on. And if we don't have something we're working on, we're probably too arrogant to recognize it and we ought to look at it and go, well, I do have something that I probably could be working on. <laughs> that I think I'm great and everybody better. else is like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know, like who? so so yes i i think that everybody is working on something i think unfortunately with stigma and stigma being one of the greatest contributors of people not receiving or getting help uh, our society tends to elevate certain addictions right and Mm -hmm. and and use them as good releases or venting like shopping right oh you you deserve a shopping day Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what your finances look like but you deserve a shopping day you deserve to treat yourself right so that's one addiction that's a little more yeah. uh, um, palatable in our society, just like alcohol. Alcohol is fairly palatable in our society. Sure. And well, it is. Both part. of them are legal. Right. Let's start yes. there. Yes. And, you know, with the either having cash in your hand or a credit card with some balance right. left, you can participate in either one of those behaviors and nobody's going to give you the stink eye. Exactly. Right. And I, I mean, cigarettes fun. at some level is more socially acceptable and then people, that's starting to get stigmatized now, right? <laughs> sure. And it is sure, funny right? that you, you don't, like, 
everybody who goes out and shops on a Friday because they had a really bad week isn't addicted to shopping. So you right. understand the piece of the escape, you know, alcohol, you go out and have a few drinks. You have drinks people that can drink, it, right. It's, fun, it's, it's being able to recognize if you're one of those people who has the ability to do that and manage it, or if you're one of those people who as soon as you start, it's never going to, Stop. you know, you, you're just going to get carried away and it's going to mm -hmm. become something much bigger than what you Or know, exercise. I mean, 100%. exercise people get addicted to, mm -hmm. right? And and that's okay in yep. some level in our society and almost promoted in our society. Right. But so there does come a point where it probably has diminishing returns. It could be dangerous. Like yeah. if you went skiing at Whiteface and then after you skied at Whiteface, went to Lion Mountain and hiked up the mountain and then skied down, that would probably be considered compulsive behavior. That's just, that's a great Obsessive, Adirondack day. And then have wine after. In my, in my <laughs> and then go and drink wine all night afterwards. Uh, that's right. Night. Is that what you did? I went and had a, I had a glass of wine with dinner. That's <laughs> possible that that happened. We call that the Adirondack sampler. You got to have a little flavor of the Adirondacks, get you're a little alpine experience and a little bit of backcountry experience. It's a good day in my world. But Let's then try to replace those with healthy copies. So say shopping is, yeah. uh, you know, more socially acceptable and you shop on a Saturday because you had about a week and you feel good with a new outfit. Um, so that's a socially accepted uh, behavior, but is it a healthy coping mechanism? Right. Right? I think that the value of this type of conversation and this type of podcast is to, is to allow people to be able to, 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 sh you know, to just say those things out loud, right? Mm -hmm. Because the more we say it out loud, the less you carry it around. That, that message in your head is like, oh my gosh, am, you know, am I a, a shopaholic? Am I an addict? Am I having trouble with my relationship with drugs or alcohol? Am I addicted to Fiji water? Yeah. <laughs> Who might be addicted to Fiji water? This might be the great cure-all for everything for me. Listen, we, uh, we know the story. I'm not going to go into the story, but we know there's a story oh, about Fiji water that makes it different than every other kind of swag sure. water on the market. Fiji water is different. Water, yeah. we're not gonna, Somebody's turning we're gonna get a sponsor. And that. Hitting you in the pocket, and look, you, man. You know, it's... Uh, but nobody's perfect. I right. think as we got to go right. back to, we could say uh, we could sit here and analyze about the uh, all the unhealthy habits yeah. I have and where I need to work, and that's overwhelming in and of itself. At some point, there has to be acceptance and and some kind of control over this is what I can. Our work dear on friend right Christine Peters always says everybody's got a thing. Like everybody <laughs> has does. a thing. It just is she like, does say like that. everybody has a thing, and you know that's probably truthful. And the difference is some people pursue it to where it becomes so detrimental to them that it destroys their life and other people are able to manage it and that's kind of that that fine juggling line like where you know where is it that you went shopping because you had an incredibly bad day and it's okay and now every time you have a bad day you're going shopping or whatever the mm -hmm. whatever the case is let's uh, swap up can you let's talk about covid and what this has done because i i will tell you i know from you have told me that domestic violence is up alcoholism is up suicide at least attempts and probably suicide completions are up um, all as a result of what you already brought up and we kind of glossed over which is the social isolation and the fact that you know people like me who struggle with these issues I need to have people in my life and as much as we joke about you know, I don't like people and all that the, the truth is I, I don't do well when I'm alone and people who are afflicted with addiction and mental health Probably there are a lot of common threads, but the most common thread is we love to isolate because it's comfortable and it is probably the single worst thing that we can do. And COVID has really exacerbated that. What do you, what do you see with that? Am I correct? Yeah, it's put, uh, like I said, uh, uh, 
a microscope on all of the societal ills that we had previous to COVID. So I think you take someone with a mental health issue or struggling with coping mechanisms and then they can't see anybody, right? They can't physically use the resources or the connections that they had before, community connectedness. Um, the transition to using telemental health services and um, Zoom and platforms like that, uh, for many people are difficult. And in this uh, rural community, we lack broadband, we lack yep. sometimes the equipment, people don't, yep. smartphones are expensive yep. um, to do that kind of service. Plus, I don't believe that anything can replace face-to-face -face interaction and the kind of um, things that happen when we are able to speak in person, socialize in person, so. Um, yeah, that whole Brady Bunch thing or Hollywood Squares on Zoom, and it, it works and it does, you know, what you have to if you're at a meeting, but you are right. The, the, the lack of personal interaction mm -hmm. of being able to sit like this and do it is really having detriment. I read somewhere that domestic violence and probably attributable to alcoholism has gone through the roof with COVID. Is that a fair statement? Well, well of course, because yeah. there's less resources and less community policing of that when you're stuck at home all the time with your <laughs> with your family, right? And th those people lack access to resources to reach out to. Um, and it's a much more controlled environment if you're just at home all day sure. with an abuser without having contact to other right. people. Sure, and, um, and I, I, I can imagine the, you know, the narrative that goes on, you know, COVID, you can't leave the home. You're not allowed to go to the grocery store. Right. You, you know, you're you. You know, the there's got to be some really awful narratives that are happening in in some of these some of these um, struggling households. And think of child abuse yep. right now. So yeah. the greatest reporter of child abuse are schools. Schools, 100%. And when the kids haven't been in schools, what they're seeing is a much more violent child abuse cases coming through hospitals. So do you, are, you, are you believing that schools should be open? I mean, it appears the CDC is about to come out and say that schools can safely reopen and probably sh we should vaccinate teachers, but I think we all have to recognize that the detriment this is probably having on kids long-term is probably worse than trying to keep them out. I'm super concerned about youth uh, yeah. being home for long periods of time because socialization is so important at some of those developmental stages and physical touch is, is very important. It, it, a lot of those developmental stages, but I'm not the CDC or the Department of Health, so I cannot comment whether or not open or not. Very politically correct. <laughs> I love that. Um, but, but I think that your conversation <laughs> lends itself to saying that the sooner we can at least get our youth back to a place where they have access to people, places, and things that support and help them with those pillars of resistance, those five pillars of resistance, yeah. is probably one of our, one of, should be one of our, 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 our primary goals as a community. How do we help get, you know, make sure that our teachers and the uh, school administration feels comfortable to put kids back in schools? That should be our priority. So, and that's yeah. part of safety. So one of those things, you know, creating safety is structure, right? Being able to know what your day is going to look like, having some kind of I routine. I go to school, I do this, this right. is who yeah. I'm going to see. Right, and, and think of some of the positive influences those teachers would have on our most vulnerable kids. And not only that, especially with the younger kids, touch is so very important for their overall functioning and long-term development. I was watching one of the news shows the other day, and somebody was on there, one of the, you know, TV doctors or whatever, and they were talking about how the year that these kids lose may be the equivalent of somewhere between three and five years. You know, you, you, you can catch them up pretty quickly on the book stuff, but what they lose, like you talked about, in that just developmental stuff, they're not just going to, it's going to take them a while to get that back. Like it doesn't, you, you know, you don't, 
Is that right? Well, and depending on what developmental stage you're on, right? We know if you don't do speech in a certain time, they lose the ability to 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 really use speech. Um, so, what developmental window are they on? You know, a five year old is going to be different than a fifteen year old. I think when we talk about childhood trauma, the pandemic in and of itself should be a one, right? Just like poverty in and of right. itself sure. should almost yep. be a one by itself. So currently we're not measuring it, but there are some studies coming out about the ripple effect around COVID talking about how uh, more affected and more traumatic it was to our children and teenagers um, than other populations. If you just think if they lost a loved one or the fear and anxiety that they had or losing their education, or I mean, there's so many factors affecti- affecting their overall mental um, and behavioral health. It will almost be a great study 20 or 30 years from now because you'll be able to look at it and go, so for a period of time, all the kids experienced the same trauma. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't, I mean, some will have additional, but all of them experienced this at trauma this of the pandemic. Trauma. Like, yeah. and ha- you know, mm-hmm. how to, same question as we talked about before. Why does, you know, Joey did fine, but Susie did not? Right. You know, what, what was, you know, what are the factors? So do you remember, do you remember bomb drills? Were you part of bomb drills sure. in schools? Yeah, sure. So how does that burn into your brain? How did you feel when those bomb drills happened? I got to get high behind the building. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> right, the bomb drill was when you, went, you hid under the desk. You moved the desk right, against the wall. Oh no, we didn't do that. You're talking about like when you yeah. left the building. No, no. Well, some did, some didn't. Yeah. But bom- no, bomb drills, as in there's a bomb, a nuclear bomb that's going to come, or we're going to during the wars, right? And then we experienced in our generation the AIDS crisis. And I do remember, I do remember the Cold War. I do remember the fear of being, you know, nuclear bombs going off. I do remember the fear of the HIV pandemic. Um, where you, you didn't know who you could touch, right, and, right. and blood and, right. and the stigma around that. So if you think of those much smaller in comparison yeah. traumas that our generation faced and what your memories are of those and the fear that that instilled, now we have this monster that's yeah. lasted for over a year and affected yeah. everyone at every level. I don't think there's any kid that has not been affected by this. And so dealing with a societal trauma like that yeah. is going to affect our entire trajectory moving forward. Yeah, there's, you're right. I mean, I think of it in terms of like a 9-11 and what the, you know, 9-11 is, you know, seared in my memory for where I was and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Sure. So I don't know if it was necessarily traumatic. Can you uh, talk to me before we cut. If it's seared in your memory, it was traumatic. traumatic. Right. Oh, I should remember <laughs> that. That was very good. Do you have more questions? I'm sorry. I want to ask one more. <laughs> I, I know that the withhold from the state, you know, the, the state went into a huge financial crisis and, you know, obviously the pandemic has affected everybody and I, I think that, you know, everybody's trying to be fair about who you cut, but a 20% cut to the Office of Mental Health and the Office of Alcoholism is, is really significant and we've seen it in this community have a detrimental effect mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what's the prognosis for going forward? Are, are we on the 20% cut for the rest of the year? We don't know the prognosis. There's only cuts, so I can't tell you anything specific or that's been solidified, but uh, now more than ever, we need to support behavioral health agencies, yeah. especially mm-hmm. coming out of this. They need more money. Um, but I know every system has been affected and everybody's hurting. And uh, we have a lot of arguments over who needs what. But if we don't take care of the behavioral health needs of our community, are the long-term effects of our societal growth and um, our societal um trajectory is just is going to be affected in such almost an insurmountable way. 
this isn't just going to affect this generation, it's going to affect the next generation. Um, because uh, we know that behavioral health affects every single core functioning of an individual and then of course of our communities and overall society. So Rochelle, can just for, for, for the people that are listening, can you speak to what resources are available both in our community or maybe even for people that are not in our particular region within um, the divisions or the departments um, statewide? Uh, what, what resources are available for people that we should become familiar with, that we should learn, you know, whatever their names are, the language, the acronym? you share some of that just to... So you can go on any of the agency's websites for the state, which is the Office of Mental Health, Office of Addictions and Support Services, and Office of Person with Developmental Disability, and they have a whole listing of resources, um, including text, helplines, you know, COVID pandemic response, so phone numbers, websites, and uh, text message to get a hold. Also, SAMHSA, which is a national network for uh, behavioral health. Locally, we have many agencies and at risk. I don't, I don't want to leave any of them out, and I'm afraid I will. But uh, we have Clinton County Mental Health and Addictions. Um, we have Behavioral Health Services North. Um, we have Champlain Valley Family Center. We have NAMI. We have Conifer Park. Um, St. Joe's. St. Joseph's in Essex and Franklin County. Um, Citizens Advocates is in... Franklin County, we have Community Connections, uh, we have Lee Rivers, we have ETC, um, we have a, a lot of different resources and you can reach out to any of those organizations and they can point you in the right direction. I think you got you got a, a lot of them, I think that's, I'm trying to think of what's on our website. The United Way is always a great resource, our friend John Bernardi and the United Way, always a great place to start. Yeah, JCEO, JCEO. is a right. good place, yep. so at risk, I'm sorry if I forget And it's anyone, funny that you know, and you bring up a valid point, and, and part of what makes this community particularly great, and I'm not saying we're better than anybody else, a lot of communities are great, but those organizations that you brought up really do go hand in hand with each other, and they really do work together. You know, there's always little bits of infighting and little pockets of that, but by and large, all of those organizations that you named and the ones that we didn't name today are always interested in one thing. How do we help that person that's really in need? I've never seen, I, I've not personally in the years I've been here ever seen any of those organizations cut somebody else's throat to, if it wasn't in the best interest of the people we're trying to help. And that's a tribute to, you know, because there are, there's silos to this. Everybody's trying to run their business effectively and, and that stuff happens. But by and large, this community really gives a shit about the people that are less fortunate and, and really go out of our way to try to help. Well, and it's personal connection, right? So I have a name and I know that person and I'm going to see them throughout our community. So we're really invested in working together and having that personal connection, which makes us go above and beyond mm -hmm. and do a little bit more and collaborate. Uh, so the network is really, really tight here and it's a personal network, not just a network of agencies and, and what they do for people. We're very fortunate in that. We are. It's been great spending Thank some time you. with you. We loved having you. She's Thank like the smartest so person. Oh, like, God. like she's, she's she's just smart, right? She's Rochelle. She's <laughs> Rochelle. I'm waiting to get my like oh. own personal fob over to <laughs> County Mental Health and Addiction. I'm over there all the time. But we oh. like putting the smart people in the I, room. I will That's tell you, Rochelle. Cool. Yes, so. thank you. Thank for, you. Thank you for coming on and and. And wait a minute. Well, everything that you've done. So if if they if anyone walks away with anything. It's not a single agency or individual effort, right? So right. it's the private community and everybody can do something, even if it's be kind. 
Um, and I think that that's the important thing to take away from this, that, that everybody has to work together towards a, a, a healthy community. Yep. I agree. You know, it's, it's funny. I don't, I don't love being the poster child for recovery, and I'm really not even appointing myself that, but I am public about it. But, you know, what I was able, I think, to bring to the, the stuff was to get the private sector a little more involved in understanding it. You know, there was always this kind of divide that, oh, that's for the mental health or the addiction professionals. And I think we've done a good job in getting some organizations here that are private employers, private businesses to understand a little bit what we're trying to do to understand their people. So you're right. We have a collective uh, army of people here who really work uh, incredibly well together. And, you know, I will tell you just personally, I mean what I say, you are, you know, you're, you're a business colleague, obviously, for a lot of reasons, but you are a very dear friend of mine, and I, I am happy mm. that you agreed to come and do this, and, and uh, I appreciate your friendship, and you know, we can talk a lot about professionalism and all that. We've been in each other's offices at some, <laughs> some bad times in our that life where true. we're just looking to have a friend to chat that with or true. a shoulder to cry on. So I thank you for always being that friend. It's, uh, it's very Done cool. the same for me, Mike Carp. Uh, that's, uh, that's and good better yet, you introduced me to Betsy. So <laughs> yes, I, I know. That's, that's really another, the another support <laughs> service. Girl here. power. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear it all the time. And I hope that through this, you know, <laughs> I, I begin to just talking with you and talking about, you know, we I love it that we can identify the problems and, and uh, allow for a platform to people to talk about the issues. But as important as that, I mean, I'm thinking about, and I'm calling the, the five pillars of resilience, but, I, you know, I just... I want us to continue to be kind of champions for, for that and figure out how we all make our efforts around talking through the problems but understanding that there are some real solution-based things that are, that are churning and active and the more we do to bolster that, the more opportunities we have to raise up even the, you know, even the, the most vulnerable of our, of our society because we are only as strong as our weakest link and how great we can be with just a little bit more. You are an amazing woman for all the work that you do. We're really fortunate to have you doing what you're doing, when you're doing it, and I know it's hard, and I know that you and your team of people have got to be challenged with all of this, so thank you. Thank you so much for, for all of your hard work and all of your efforts. It's, it's, big, it's big work. It's a big deal, so thanks. Thank you. So this has been Recovery Uncovered. Thanks a bunch for watching. Rochelle Gregory was great. We hope that we entertain and informed you a little bit. We'll be certain to have her back in the future as, uh, as things change in the world. So thanks again for watching. Oh. COVID out! Thanks for joining us today at Recovery Uncovered. No matter where you are in your recovery journey, or if you're supporting the recovery journey of a loved one, just know today is the first day of the rest of your life. Visit our website at mhab.org. And if you want to become an old timer in recovery, don't use and don't die. This has been Recovery Uncovered. <laughs>